Athena's the goddess of winning wars, and she used to stride into battle alongside her favourite mortals, an owl accompanying her. She inherited all her mother's shrewdness. Any mortal advised by her was strategic, meticulous and cunning. Inventive and practical, she was also the goddess of technology. She taught humans how to weave wood into the first ship, how to card wool and spin it, how to work the loom. the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Naomi, producer of the show, and today I'm excited to be introducing a special extract from Greek Myths by Charlotte Higgins, with drawings by Chris Ophelia. Charlotte Higgins retells the myths of the creation, of Heracles and Theseus and Perseus, the Trojan War and its origins and aftermaths, tales of Thebes and Argos and Athens... There are stories of love and desire, adventure and magic, destructive gods, helpless humans, fantastical creatures, resourceful witches and the origins of birds and animals. This is a world of extremes and one that resonates deeply with our own. Mysterious diseases, devastate cities, environmental disasters tear lives apart, women habitually suffer violence at the hands of men. And unlike in many previous collected myths, female characters take centre stage. Athena, Helen, Circe, Penelope and others weave their stories into elaborate imagined tapestries. In today's episode we'll be hearing an extract from the story of Athena. We hope you enjoy. Athena had her workshop on Mount Olympus near the mansions where the immortals feast on nectar and ambrosia, and while away the unvarying bliss of their lives. In this great, high-ceilinged hall stood baskets of fleeces. Some were unwashed, straight from the finest Arcadian flocks. Some were clean and waiting to be combed, then roved into convenient lengths for spinning. On a chair lay her distaff, loaded up with wool, her muscular hand would send the patterned whirl whirling, drawing out even lengths of thread between finger and thumb and winding it up on her golden spindle. The room was dominated, though, by her magnificent, well-warped loom, which she herself had invented and built. It was taller than her and so wide that even she, a goddess, must walk up and down, up and down, as she passed the weft neatly through the warp threads, pressing them into place with her weaving sword, then adjusting the shaft before taking up the shuttle and sending the weft back again. On her great web, the goddess wove a border showing the origin of the world, casting back to an impossibly distant time before even she saw the light. All there was back then was chaos, a chasm, a confused, formless morass. She picked it out in dark, swirling shapes, a wild abstraction. Back then, uncountable years ago, air and land and sea were intermingled. 
There is no Helios in his golden chariot, bringing light to the world in his daily journey through the sky. There is no Selene with her ivory horns, lightening the night with her milky glow. There was no Eos to draw night and day gently apart each morning with her rose-pink fingers. There was no fruitful, green-limbed Gaia. There were merely atoms, innumerable, as leaves shivering in the wind on a thickly forested mountainside. And they were constantly obstructing each other, constantly at war. Cold fought with heat, wet with dry, weight with weightlessness. In strife the universe began, and in strife it would continue. But nothing stays the same. There existed also a force, an agent of change. This force ceased the conflict of the elements and separated them. Ether, the light upper air, sprang away from Gaia, the strong and ample earth. She sculpted her body into mountain ranges and broad valleys. She smoothed her skirts into deserts and plains. Then the force unleashed the great salt seas. The waters flowed into their allotted places like a wave that floods a channel a child has dug on a sandy beach. Gaia spontaneously gave birth to Uranus, the broad heaven. Then together, Gaia and Uranus had many sons and daughters, the generation of immortals called the Titans. Among them were Tethys, who presides over the sunless depths of the sea, the mother of a thousand nymphs, Oceanus, who belts the world with his fresh waters, the one-eyed Cyclops, the giant hundred-handers, and Iapetus, Metis, Rhea, and Cronus. Oceanus filled the world with rivers, cataracts tumbled for the first time over new-made rocks, Deltas separated into snaky channels. Sluggish marshes spread. And since Gaia had been nourished by these waters, forests and grassy plains sprang up. Plants rooting down and sprouting and spreading and flowering and offering their life-filled seeds back to the soil. In turn came living creatures in their bewildering variety all those that inch their way across the earth, or soar, or flutter above it, those that gallop across the steppes, and those that burrow beneath the soil, those that scuttle across the seafloor, or glide and flick their way through its waters. But Uranus was jealous, and frightened of his own offspring. And so he hurled them down into Tartarus, a prison far below the surface of the earth. There the titan gods languished, surrounded by adamantine walls that flamed with darkness. Gaia was furious to see her children banished to this deathly place. She said to her son, Cronus, Tonight, I'll rescue you from that awful prison that's made from my own bones and entrails. I'll give you a sickle. Use it as a weapon against your father. And don't hesitate. When Uranus came to sleep with Gaia that night, Cronus was lying in wait. Just as his mother had instructed him, he swung the sickle, cutting off his father's genitals, flinging them into the sea. Later, out of the foam that gathered around the severed parts, a goddess was born, 
Aphrodite. Athena wove her as she stepped ashore on Cyprus, smiling and lifting her shining arms to the nymphs who came to attend on her. From Aphrodite's every step on the earth, violence and celandines sprung up. From her came delicious desire that unravels the wits of deities and mortals alike. The titan gods Cronus and Rhea reigned now, and the children they had together were the younger generation of immortals called the Olympians. Zeus and Hera, Poseidon and Hades, Demeter, goddess of the harvest, and Hestia, goddess of the hearth. The next scene on Athena's border was the story of how Cronus in his turn came to be overthrown by his wife Rhea and son Zeus, establishing the Olympian generation of gods in power. Cronus, like Uranus before him, became terrified by his young, strong children. And so, as each of them was born, he swallowed them. And out of fear, he also imprisoned the Cyclops and the Hundred-Handers in the depths of Tartarus. Rhea, like Gaia before her, was horrified. When her youngest, Zeus, was born, she tricked her husband by giving him a stone to swallow instead of a baby and spirited the child away to Mount Dicte in Crete. There, in a glade in the impenetrable depths of the forest, the goat, Amalthea, secretly nurtured the young god. To distract the curious, she summoned the rowdy spirits called Curites, who drowned Zeus's crying with their raucous symbols. When Zeus was fully grown, he persuaded the shrewdest of the titan immortals, Metis, to help him. She procured for him a certain drug. Feed this to Cronus, she said. You'll soon see your brothers and sisters again. He dropped Metis's herb into his father's nectar, which is what the gods drink in place of wine. Cronus first choked, then regurgitated all of Zeus's siblings, followed, last of all, by the stone. Now that Zeus and his siblings stood together in freedom, war broke out between the generations. Olympians ranged against Titans, daughters and sons struggling against the father's flaming legions. Embattled squadrons of Titan gods filled the skies. Against them, storming furious, ranged the ranks of the younger gods and those of the older Titans whom they had enlisted as allies. For ten years their battles blasted through the vaults of heaven, though a decade is like a heartbeat to these beings who can never fight to the death. In the end, it was Gaia, exhausted by the conflict, who broke the deadlock. Zeus will win this war, she prophesied, but only if he unleashes the forces of Tartarus. So he descended to the bituminous depths of that prison and negotiated with a hundred handers and the Cyclops. In return for their freedom, the Cyclops gave Zeus thunderbolts and their loyalty. Zeus now cast his new weapon, pale and blinding, through the fabric of the sky, ripping it end to end. Then he hurled another, stronger, at his father. It fell like a white-hot sword thrust with inexorable force. For the first time, Cronus felt pain rush through his body. In his agony, he writhed and convulsed and bled. 
though immortals do not bleed as humans do, since it is not red blood but ichor, bright as gold that flows in their veins. Cronus sued for peace. Zeus imprisoned his titan enemies, including his father, in the depths of Tartarus. The hundred-handers became their prison guards. When all of that business was done, Zeus turned to his most powerful brothers, Poseidon and Hades. There are three parts to the universe, he said. The sky, the land and sea, and the underworld. I propose we draw lots and divide these realms between us. Poseidon and Hades agreed. Poseidon won the land and the sea, when storms crash through the oceans, when the earth trembles and cracks, tearing cities apart. It is his doing. Hades won the world below, where the faint, ghostly traces of mortals crowd insubstantial and insensate. Zeus won the sky and became the king of gods, god of kings, stormbringer, guarantor of justice, protector of a guest's right to hospitality. He reigned from his palace on Mount Olympus, where his sacred bird, the eagle, soared. His sister, Hera, protector of marriage vows and families, became his wife. As a wedding gift, Gaia gave Hera trees bearing golden apples. She planted them in her garden, in the land of the Hyperboreans beyond the North Wind. Athena's tapestry showed the goddess as she wandered through her beloved orchard, tended by the Hesperides, the daughters of evening. Nearby crouched Atlas, one of Zeus's titan enemies. He was hunched in agony, limbs aching. He had been sentenced to carry the vault of the sky on his shoulders, keeping Gaia and Uranus apart so they would never again become parents to powerful, unruly offspring. Here as children with Zeus, with the ever-youthful Hebe, and Ares, the violent god of war who delights in shattered corpses. But she had one child, Hephaestus, who was born without a father. The craftsman of the gods, wiry and strong, he worked day and night with his assistants, the Cyclops, at a forge as hot and as powerful as a volcano. He walked with difficulty. One day, when Zeus and Hera were arguing, he had tried to intervene. Zeus hurled him down from Olympus. He fell for a whole day and landed on the island of Lemnos, injuring his leg. He made marvellous and deadly things, a shield fit for the greatest warrior, engraved with scenes so detailed and vivid you could almost see and hear them. A net made from metal as silky and fine as a spider's web, but strong enough to imprison an immortal. He made a net like that to trap his wife, Aphrodite, and his half-brother Ares, when they slept together. Athena wove a panel showing the story of her own birth. Zeus, in his lust for power, tried to rape the titan goddess Metis. She used all her cunning to escape him, changing herself into myriad forms to try to wrest herself free from his terrible grasp, flicking desperately through shapes as you might through the pages of a book. In the end, though, the threat of Zeus's thunderbolt defeated her. He had her caught in his iron grip. She became pregnant. Gaia prophesied again. If Metis has a baby, fathered by Zeus, 
that child will be stronger than him. Zeus's response was to swallow Metis whole. Later, he had Hephaestus extract the baby from his head with an axe. She came out fully armed, with a spear and a shield, and a plume of feathers nodding from her helmet. Perhaps if her father had not cheated Gaia's prophecy, Athena would have defeated her father to rule on Olympus in her turn. Athena's the goddess of winning wars, and she used to stride into battle alongside her favourite mortals, an owl accompanying her. She inherited all her mother's shrewdness. Any mortal advised by her was strategic, meticulous and cunning. Inventive and practical, she was also the goddess of technology. She taught humans how to weave wood into the first ship, how to card wool and spin it, how to work the loom. Beside the image of her own birth, Athena made a panel of Apollo and Artemis, her luminous half-siblings, their deadly bows raised to kill mortals with unerring arrows. The twins' father was Zeus, and their mother, the titan goddess Leto, who gave birth to them on the island of Delos. Apollo, the sun god, was blinding, distant, vindictive. Fierce, virginal Artemis, both protector and hunter of wild animals, kept the shadows and the woods. When a human died suddenly in their prime, it was likely as not because Artemis or Apollo launched an arrow at them. Apollo used his arrows to send deadly plagues too, though he was also a healer. When the world was young, Apollo shot dead a tremendous creature called the Python, a child of Gaia. To commemorate his kill, Apollo founded the Pythian Games, where mortals competed in chariot races, running races and wrestling. And there at Delphi, he also established his oracle. He used to whisper into the ear of his priestess, the Pythia, who gave prophecies to those who visited his sanctuary. But the oracle could trip the unwary. The Pythia's utterances were bundles of ambiguity, from which questioners, as often as not, extracted only what they wanted to hear. In the forecourt of his temple were inscribed the words, Know yourself, since it was only with self-knowledge that a human could unravel the confusing tangle of the priestess's words. Athena wove her other half-brother, the shifty, untrustworthy Hermes. She showed him racing through the sky on winged boots, his snake-wreathed staff in hand. He was the son of Zeus and the nymph Maia, a protector of travellers, a messenger of Zeus, a prankster solemn only when accompanying the souls of the dead to Hades. For no reason other than to make trouble, he once stole cattle that Apollo was tending, herding them off into the mountains while his half-brother was distracted by a young man he was lusting after. Once he had them hidden, he sacrificed one of them. Then, Idly playing around with the cow's entrails and the shell of a turtle, he constructed the first lyre. When Apollo finally caught up with him, he was so entranced by the sound made by the instrument that he forgot his fury and traded the cattle for the lyre. Apollo brought the art of music to mortals in all its mathematical precision and harmonious order.
Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. We hope you enjoyed that extract. You can find out more about Greek myths by Charlotte Higgins in the episode description. Which is your favourite retelling? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again and until next time, read boldly, think differently. Thank you.